philosophy of psychoanalysis. Hello and welcome back. My name is Nina McElwain. In this season, we're going to be bringing you a series of lectures on personality. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 20, Cults, Charisma and Culture. Okay, um, welcome to Personality. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to sort of outline how I try to approach personality, because I'm not just interested in the biology of it, I'm not just interested in describing it, I'm not just interested in measuring it, I'm interested in how it develops. And if you're interested in how something develops, you've got to sort of recognise that culture can actually shape something that is as nuts and bolts about me as my hunger. Okay, so it's not, it's not as if, oh, you've got the cultural level, then you've got the personal level, and then you've got the subpersonal level. They're all absolutely intertwined, and that's what I want to illustrate in today's lecture. Okay, so there's kind of three levels, if you like, that I'm fascinated by. One, the one I'm most interested in at times is the subpersonal. I'm really interested in emotions and drives and bodies and all that kind of stuff. And that's the subpersonal. They're the things that are influencing and shaping your behavior, but you don't even really know that they're having an effect. The personal level is more like the things that you're able to put into words. You know that they're happening. You can sometimes believe that you're influencing things happening at that level. It's a myth, of course. No such thing as free will. Um, but that's the kind of personal level that you chat to your friends about. Um, and then the cultural level can sometimes be quite unconscious um, because we're sort of soaking in it, if you like. It's like the discourses that are around us everywhere about what beauty is or what's a desirable thing to do or what's the most shameful thing that could happen to anyone. Um, it's also the sorts of discourses and um, scaffolding, that you, if you like, that shapes how we recall our memories, what we aspire to. Um, we often don't realise that by growing up in Australia, we might take a particular attitude to having tickets on ourselves that you wouldn't if you were growing up in America. Okay, so there's a there's whole different things about feeling good about yourself in this culture and cultures like Scotland and Canada as well, compared to growing up in cultures where it's much more acceptable explicitly to feel very good about yourself in public. Okay, so that's the kind of cultural domain. So at the personal level, there's a kind of sense of self. You formulate intentions about your future. You might even make plans for them. You certainly can tell stories and make narratives about them to your friends and self-stories, which are stories to yourself about where you're headed in life. At the subpersonal, you've got unconscious processes, um, but you've also got sort of traumatic experiences, which might be so unconscious that you've never thought them in words at all. They're not in language at all. And the only way that we can pick up on them as an observer is by watching what you do, called enactments. So there's all sorts of unconscious processes. It's a whole diverse array of things that are happening there. Also at the subpersonal, you've got the very basic drives like, you know, hunger, sex. Um, you've got affects like joy, surprise, interest, rage, etc. And at the subpersonal, and often operating quite unconsciously too, you have schemas like, you know, your internal working models of attachment that shape what you notice about the world, 
and it shapes how you interpret information about oneself. So these domains, they're sort of intersecting domains because, you know, the cultural domain scaffolds our memory processes. You know, there are sort of, there are stories that we tell. You know, if you ask people about their lives, they often know how to sort of pick certain milestones, you know, births, deaths and marriages. The cultural domain, quite importantly, also provides us with audiences for our stories, shape our sense of self, because we might see ourselves as agentic, you know, operating on our own, but we might also see ourselves as quite communal, you know, operating in quite an extended sort of dispersed way among others. The culture certainly shapes our gender identity and what we think about the body that we happen to inhabit. It certainly uh, shapes our sources of morality, what we feel ashamed of, what we feel guilty about are quite culturally relevant, and uh, they certainly influence the stories that we tell and what it is that becomes unconscious. Like we might feel ashamed of different things or repress different things depending on what cultural requirements are imposed on us. What's most remarkable to me, though, is that culture actually shapes whether or not we're the kind of people who are very active or passive in our sexuality, whether we like to be uh, observed or doing the observing, whether we put our sexuality out into the world or turn it back on ourselves in certain ways. So the culture, right from the word go, is bouncing against our desires and shaping the forms that are even our sexual desires take. So sexuality is not just a biological thing. It's culturally imbued. And um, at the level of the personal domain, uh, we get all sorts of influences from narratives, from sense of self, back onto our emotions and our impulses. Which ones are we prepared to tell stories about? Which ones do we never tell stories about? Which ones do we not even know that we've got in terms of schemas? But they're right there, you know, interpreting all the data before we're even aware of it as it arises. So at the personal domain, you've got narratives. You've got um, these narratives which can shape what sense you make of your impulses and emotions and which ones you're prepared to include in the stories that you tell. At the personal domain, you've also got what's called chronically accessible schemas. In other words... Um, you might be very, very concerned with, say, shame, or you might be uh, a very uh, a person who's very much open to curiosity and uh, things that inspire wonder. So there might actually be knowledge structures that filter what comes in at you from the world and which ones you see as being salient. And you might either have a sort of positive bias towards positive events or if you're constantly in a state of fear or anxiety, you might accidentally be scanning the world for sources of threat, but you don't realise that you're doing that. You think that's just the way that the world is. And you see this a lot with with people who have difficulties um, assimilating material that, that tells them that they're a good person, that they're worthwhile. They might have a schema that they're not worthy of love or that they're unlikely to succeed, and this can actually be shaping the way that they're living in the world without them knowing it. What also shapes us is how our stories are received. And we'll be talking a fair bit about what's called audience uptake, whether or not people are prepared to allow you uh, credence, whether they believe the stories that you tell and see the things that you think as being important in life as also being important. Do they value the things that you value? And also, I suppose... You're also shaped by cultural expectations that are accorded to you according to things like age and gender and which cultural subgroup that you're a part of. 
Now, one of my colleagues who's no longer in the department once honestly really said in a, in a site department meeting, well, you know, if it's personality, it's got to be the big five. That's all there really is to personality. And I just sort of wept silently on the table, you know. Um, but the big five is very useful. And that's one of the things that we'll be looking at in the second part of today's lecture. Because it sort of maps what's called the psychology of the stranger. Uh, it looks at openness to experience, for instance, how open you are to novelty and um, cultural experiences. It looks at conscientiousness. Do you plan? Do you schedule your time? Do you meet deadlines? Are you organized every inch of the way? That's conscientiousness. Extroversion, which has got a big biological component to it, is kind of not just sociability, but it's things like can you cope with very intense stimulation, loud music, lemon juice on your tongue is one way that they measure it. Agreeableness is, do you take people at face value? So if you've got a theory of an unconscious, you're going to come out as a very disagreeable person on the big five, because if you think people have unconscious processes that they don't know about, you don't take people just at face value because you know there's stuff about that person that they don't know themselves and there's stuff about me that I don't know. So agreeableness is I think got a few problems with how it's conceptualized. Neuroticism, I think, has got a big biological component. And um, I think extroversion and neuroticism are very, very powerful variables of personality that you will see running through many different assessment procedures. So I'll alert you to that. But that's not all there is to personality, I just want to say. I want to ask you a few questions to demonstrate that there is a way that you can approach even quite unusual cultural phenomena from a personality perspective. Okay, so if I were to open a big set of doors over there and I had, unbeknownst to you, set up a, a bungee jumping experience and it was totally free, which of you would go bungee jumping straight away? Fantastic. Whoa. Who would never go bungee jumping? Far out. Who didn't put up their hand? Fantastic. So that's a personality thing too. It's like, yeah, I've got, I might have an opinion, but I'm not sure, but I'm not going to put up my hand. Some of the reasons why you didn't put up your hands, can I just ask you? Anybody prepared to say why they didn't put up their hand? Couldn't decide or you need to be persuaded? How delightful. See, individual personality, that's beautiful. Okay, how many of you have firewalked ever? Nobody. Oh, okay. Why, why do you think people like Anthony Robbins use motivational experiences like firewalking? Fabulous. To take people out of their comfort zone. Wonderful. It's about fear, isn't it? Because fear is a kind of self-limiting emotion. And it's very easy to believe that living in the world of your expectations is actually living in the world. But your expectations can be narrower than what you're actually capable of. And we all have fears that we think we're quite alone in experiencing. You know, I'll never be good enough. I'll fail. I'll be unworthy of love. People will laugh at me. I'll be a laughing stock. I'll be a joke. So we don't even have a go. So what he does is make you act in the face of that fear. And insofar as what's happening is that you personally are experiencing something that you believe to be impossible as possible and you're doing it. And there's chanting and there's drums and there's high emotion and there's crowds and there's this kind of enormous sense of breaking through something into success, recognition, high emotion. So it's kind of like you're stepping outside of that kind of individual personality 
because you're beyond your comfort zone, you're out of that historical personality, you're doing something that your emotional register says don't do, you're doing it in the face of a crowd. So there's actually a sense of merger, union, joy, a lot of those kinds of contagion-like phenomena where the emotion really infects everyone in the crowd. And that's precisely what he's trying to get you to do. He's trying to sort of make you realize that that you've been feeling alone, you've been feeling helpless, you've been feeling weak, you've been powerless, etc. And and you actually have a lot more power than you realize. Now, what that's actually keying into is one of the secret ingredients of charisma. And charisma is something that doesn't attract everybody. Anthony Robbins is not charismatic for everybody, for instance. But charismatic leaders kind of set up what I call a kind of lock and key fit between themselves and certain potential followers. And the people that are sort of sitting ducks, if you like, for being potential followers are people that feel marginalized, weak, helpless, badly treated, hard done by, etc. Very much like Germany after the World War, Second World War, um, sorry, where they, after the First World War, where there had been the Treaty of Versailles, they had lost a lot of land and lost a lot of resources. And there was this feeling that, that this once powerful nation had been brought to its knees, which was, you know, ripe, fertile soil for someone like Hitler to come along and to give voice to, you know, this is a warrior nation. This is a nation that should rise up and be powerful and pure and strong and go forward into this visionary future. And, and the rest, alas, is history. Well, historically, charisma has been defined as offering you a transcendence of self, like something that takes you beyond your own boundaries. So it's an emotional experience. It's an ecstatic experience. It's not just taking you outside of yourself. It's taking you into relationship with a beloved other. And it's usually the charismatic leader themselves doing a stand-in for something that's much larger than them, an ideal, a vision, um, perhaps into the notion of, uh, you know, being more powerful than death, you know, being able to live forever, being immortal or divine. And what happens with charisma, very much like what happens in romance, is that the lover finds the beloved to be magnetic, compelling. There's this kind of unusual bond that gets set up. They experience the other as it operating outside of the range of ordinary, everyday logic. They're special, they're extraordinary, they're remarkable in every way. So you get this sense of a very unique personality in the charismatic other. And that's why back in the sort of like probably around 19... 20, I think Rudolf Sohn was writing, I think that's right, and he referred to it as a gift of grace. In other words, it wasn't something at a personality level at all, or even at a cultural level. It had to come from some other dimension, something that was almost spiritual or, or transcendent that linked you to the universal. So in other words, you were a conduit, if you like, a pipeline for a source of power that was an unknown source of power. And now, I actually don't believe that it channels an unknown source of power, but I do think it channels something within the human that because we don't know that it's there, we're very, very vulnerable to it. And we're vulnerable, vulnerable to anybody who can appeal to it. They can actually gain uncanny power over us if, we, if there are things about ourselves that we don't know about ourselves. So what does uncanny mean? 
Well, I call it in you out there. It's, it's literally when you feel turned inside out. It might be that something that's quite familiar to you, you thought perhaps you were the only person that had ever felt this, and then suddenly it's out there in the external world. Someone else is giving voice to it and is saying that it's a legitimate thing to have or fear or hope for. And, and so it makes you think, wow, that's something about me that I didn't think anyone else could possibly have known. And perhaps you didn't realize it was part of you until that moment. So it might actually be that it was already there, but it was unconscious within your personality. And so suddenly that sense that you're a separate, bounded, agentic, unique individual breaks down and you feel a bit leaky and porous, as though someone has seen right through you. And so often you lose that sense of your own boundaries and you merge or meld with the other or with the crowd and you feel a quite unique bond and you feel superhuman in your powers and you certainly don't feel that everything that you've been to that moment is all that you are. Suddenly the world opens up and feels very possible. So in other words, it's a great source of energy and transformation. But the problem is because it's hooking into your vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities that you don't know that you've got, it can be an explosive and disastrous combination as well, which is why I think it matters that as psychologists we know about these kinds of things. Because before you know it, you're saying that person is supernaturally right. They're divine. I'll give them my house, my money, my Rolls Royce, I wish. Yeah. But what does this have to do with personality? Okay, Isn't this just some weird social phenomenon. Why do individual differences matter here? Well, I think they have everything to do with it. Because that leader has picked up on what might be emotionally welcome as a message to you, for you. So in other words, they're, they're quite good at seeing into your need state or inferring what might be your need state given the historical moment or given how you're socially placed at a particular moment in time. If you're a downtrodden minority group or, or you're of a gender that's disadvantaged in a particular setting. So charisma is not really something that streams down from the heavens, I don't think. It's something that you give to the other. It's a power that you give, you hand over to another person. You see them as having it. You don't think, I've given them that power. You just feel they are charismatic. But actually, it's a lock and key fit between aspects of your personality and aspects of their message, their personality, their vision. Their message, their personality, and their vision. And that's the lock and key, key fit. Now, it isn't random who ends up being seen as charismatic. There were certainly people in that list of pictures that I put up that you're going, nah, yes, possibly, nah, right? I could sort of, I could sense from your non-verbals and from your paralinguistics that you probably didn't like much the two political leaders. Johnny Depp was probably more, you know, up there and Kira Knightley. Don't think Bieber got it, is that right? No, Miley Cyrus, no, possibly. Anyway, so what you've got in charismatic leaders is there is something about them that marks them off as different. They often do have courage to oppose the ordinary. They often do have a certain freedom of libido. 
and there's dangers in that, as I'll tell you. They often do have an explosive novelty of being. They see, they say things that are quite unexpected, and they've got an ability to carry people along with them. But how do they do that? Well, it's a skill. Can it be acquired? Well, possibly. Possibly. It's a, it's a whole lot of component skills, really. But one, what I see as a central feature of the skill is the capacity to know where we are in history at a particular moment and to give voice to a message that's right for that time in history. We might have just come out of a crisis or there might be a fear looming like nuclear destruction. And the, the message has to appeal both to the fears of what might happen, but also longings, you know, for a possible new way that things might be. And they have to be able to understand people enough either to see into their hearts or have a group of advisors that can see into the hearts of people and advise them accordingly. And what's remarkable about charisma and why I think it matters is that the leaders are able to carry people along to sacrifice their labor, their wealth, and sometimes life itself, like the Jonestown massacres, quite a famous case, and over 800 people, about 835, I think, drank grape Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide just because the leader told them to do so. That's an astonishing power for one person to have over 835 people. You'd drop them to the ground no sweat if all of you got together, wouldn't you? It's like he would be no match for you. What is that power that that person had? So I suppose they speak to what we think no one else knows about us, deep fears, not just that they speak about the fears, but they have an ideology that has a set of solutions orchestrated as to how you might resolve those fears. And if they're really clever, and this would be the HD in charisma as far as I'm concerned, if they could name those fears, give you a solution to them, and solve them without you having to say, yes, I actually was afraid, right, They've already solved that problem. You don't even have to acknowledge that you were in this lowly state of fear. Then that's real power. The thing that's interesting about it is that the notion of us as separate autonomous beings is quite a restricted view of personality because we are more or less merged most of our lives. We are scaffolded by our parents. We link up to groups. We have group identity, group solidarity, etc. Um but if you actually feel that a leader is capable of knowing what you're thinking or communicating to you in your dreams, as some people that I've studied think the leader can communicate to you via your dreams, if he's divine and says that he won't end when his body ends and you merge with that, you've merged with the deathless object of design. You don't have to fear your own mortality any longer. And that's usually quite a big fear that many of us don't face on a daily basis. So if they can meet that fear without you having to acknowledge you've got it, they're doing good things. So they make you feel part of something that's larger than yourself, something that's new, that's never been around before. And one of the things that I'm obsessed with as a kind of methodology, I love doing content analysis of the words as they were spoken. And so I was delighted to find a very recent 2010 article that analyzes all of the speeches of Korean um, prime ministers or presidents, I can't remember, prime ministers, I think. And it finds that the most successful, um, no, that's right, they analyzed all the, the 
speeches of the successful presidential candidates in the US and found that the successful ones were the ones who'd used words like vision, dream, future, heart, that's right, those are the three big ones. And then they replicated that in Korea and found that it was very similar, that, that certain themes that were about emotion that weren't too biological but much more um, you know, about uh, possibilities, they were the ones that were successful. And of course, the famous example is Martin Luther King. Um, he's, a, as you probably know, a civil rights activist. So Martin Luther King, civil rights activist, as you know, he's famous for his speech, I Have a Dream. And if you look at the repetition, the kind of lulling, soothing repetition, he says, I say to you, my friends, that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations, so he's talking about what's wrong of the moment, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. So three dreams in about as many breaths. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal. So they're saying the ideology is already there. It's already part of the American dream. And the American people are not living up to it at this moment in history. And, and So charisma is good if the leader's personality can handle worship. Because worship is really tough. It's really tough to get what you think you want. It's also good and has good outcome if the leader can stay focused on something larger than their own self-interests. And to do that, because we're all fallible, power is a really corrupting thing, we need to keep around us people that are actually going to call us. You know, they're going to say, load of rubbish, Doris. I disagree, you know, um, because they've got to have some sort of checks and balances on on people's power. And And what you notice is that what I call dark charismatics tend to sur- surround themselves with yes men who go, yeah, yeah, great, great idea, brilliant, oh, fantastic, oh, wish I'd thought of that, instead of, how's that going to work? You know, that's, that doesn't seem right. And Idi Amin was a, a classic example of this. One of the articles that I'll put online for you by post describes the way in which if anybody even asked Idi Amin to delay a policy, not you know, scotch it, but just delay it. They were sent home in body bags to their wives. So he surrounded himself with yes men. And the end result is, of course, he gets more and more narcissistic. You know, narcissism is a dynamic state. You might be predisposed to having it, but it can certainly be intensified as a result of life experiences. And this was the title. I love this. This was his title for himself. His Excellency, President for Life, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and Uganda in particular. It's a very, very modest about himself, isn't he? Okay, so it's dangerous to get what you want sometimes. If you um, get put into that position, even if you weren't too narcissistic to start with, watch out. Your ego is going to bulge as a result of all the adoration that you get. One of the things that happens is people like that tend to believe that they are beyond the law. Like, you know, the the execution of Osama bin Laden, I think, is actually an incredibly controversial thing for someone to do because it's putting you beyond the law. In other words, you are becoming a terrorist to oppose a terrorist, which I don't think is a real good look. It's not a good move to make. I'm not judging. Who knows? I mean, who knows how one would be oneself if, if one's citizens were under such threat? But, you know, it's, it's a risky move. One of the 
defense mechanisms that's most dangerous in a charismatic and very, very easy to spot once it starts to arise is the most primitive defense mechanism that we all have when we start out in life, which is that we tend to split. We tend to split ourselves into good and bad. We tend to split our mum into the good one and the bad one. And we certainly split the world into the people that are with us and the people that aren't. So the us and them. Now that in-group, out-group formation that social psychology talks about is all very well. But if you sort of add the unconscious to that, it becomes even more kind of psychotic and sort of Salvador Dali-ish in a way. Because it's not just that you actually divide the world in a real sort of way or a realistic way into good and bad. But you sort of get rid of your own rubbish as well onto the out groups. You dump the things that you might be ashamed about of yourself and say that it's true of them. And so that's the notion, you know, in, in ancient times, if a village had disease, people would symbolically transfer the disease onto a goat and then drive it out of the town so that it would carry the disease with it. That's the notion of a scapegoat. And I think we still do that you know, to a very real uh, level. And we don't realize that we're doing it, that we're ascribing to the other person things that may actually also be true of us or only be true of us and not true of them at all. So what I'm suggesting is that personality is in there because you need to know about the needs of the follower to understand charisma. And the follower might be ideal-hungry. Personality is in there because you need to know about the needs of the leader because the leader might be mirror-hungry. But you also need to look at the dynamic interplay of personalities to truly understand what's going on. So you can't just look at things in isolation. You need to look at the process as it unfolds. And I think that's why real-world research is actually quite important. One of the things that makes for a dark charismatic, I think, is where the person either goes into that situation with quite a lot of narcissism to start with, or whatever narcissism they've potentially got just you know, grows and grows and grows as a result of adoration and worship and having no naysayers. It means that they come to see their followers and others outside of the group, especially, as a means to an end. They don't see them as full humans in their own right. They're quite prepared to use and exploit them, and they don't set them free, even though that's often what they're promising. I will liberate you. I will set you free, but you are nowhere free when you're in those sorts of charismatic bonds. So my suggestion is that it's one thing to have attributes that are worthy of, worthy of emulation, you know, people going, yeah, wow, I'd love to be like that too. But that doesn't necessarily entail longing to have power over others. I think those are two quite separate roles that a leader can play, if you like. And I think that the, the people that get into politics because they want power, they're the very ones that you'd be going, nah, nah, office job for you, you know, go the other way. Because it's that seeking of power for its own sake that I think is a bit of a danger sign. And many people, as you will find out ad nauseum in this course, wish to have power. Psychopaths have a kind of callous, unemotional power because they don't have the full range of feelings, and that inhibits all sorts of things about their development. Machiavellians certainly are going for power, and they'll butter you up, they'll appeal to your vanity, they'll flatter you, and then once they've got you, they're going, oh, yeah, this is great, boom, in goes the knife, right? They appeal to the worst in you. Now, narcissists, uh, and I think there's a narcissistic core to both of those personalities, 
I think psychopaths have got narcissistic elements and Machiavellians have got narcissistic elements, but someone who doesn't have those darker overlays to their narcissism, who's just narcissistically wounded, they're actually trying to get from their followers the adoration that they feel that they missed out on. So they're trying to make good a deficit in their early life, but they're often not great characters to be around. So charisma is a true test in a sense. It's like fame. It tests the personality of those who have it, and many people don't pass the test. Society, often the society who's challenged by charismatic leaders don't pass the test. They often retaliate by becoming tyrants in their own right. Waco, Texas is an example of that, where the FBI went in and killed almost every man, woman, and child that was part of a religious sect because they had dared to oppose a government agency, the FDA. Um, It also challenges the independence of mind of those who follow and those who are alongside the leaders. Their independence of mind is sorely challenged. It's very difficult to stand up to a charismatic. It can be quite dangerous, but it can also be just difficult to think when you're in that situation. Okay, so that's the kind of cultural level. If I wanted to sort of assess you know, the personality of the followers. How would I go about doing that? Well, one thing that I think I wouldn't do is I don't think I would just get what I call a broadband measure of traits and go in and see how agreeable or conscientious or extroverted a person was. Neuroticism might be useful because people that are, you know, feeling a bit put upon and can't soothe themselves they may be somewhat charisma prone. But one of the things that if you don't know all that much about personality, you tend to think is a good idea, is to use big scattergun approaches, broadband measures that just try to map a broad domain of personality. The big five is an obvious example to that. Um, the I think personality questionnaire and Telegon's multidimensional personality questionnaire are three that you would use if you didn't really know which bit of personality is likely to be relevant, but you wanted to throw a personality measure in there. The big five looked like it was going to absolutely take over in the 1990s, and I was a bit terrified because it felt like a real dark age. You know, we'd all been sort of trying to work in very complex ways with personality, and, oh, you know, if there's one aspect of personality that you're interested in, you want to sort of zoom right in there and get really precise measures. If you're predisposed to envy or if you tend to put your anger outwards rather than inwards, it's kind of like there's all these very cool measures for it. And then Costa and McRae were coming along like businessmen, really, and saying, we've got this product, you know, it's the big five, it's a dollar questionnaire, and we're going to get all the runs on the board, you know, and everybody else is just flailing around, flapping in the wind, they don't know what they're doing, you know, and I was going, no, no, we do, we do, you know, and it really looked like the big five was going to rule the day, which is why you can imagine me sitting in you know, a, a staff seminar and, or a, a staff meeting rather, and one of my beloved colleagues going, oh, personality, the big five, that's all there is, isn't it? And I'm like, oh, no, it's not. You know? But um, they're still quite good measures, so I'm not meaning to shoot them out of the sky, but what I want to do now is make you a little bit savvy about some of the myths that are around in psychology. And I know that they're around because I've got them in my own personality at times, and I certainly see them in my colleagues at times, and I see them in the literature. And I want to just give you another way of thinking as well. So trays 
are very useful. Broadband scattergun approaches very useful, but that's only a very small part of personality. Okay. So let me just tell you a tiny bit about them. And I've got them if you want them. I can certainly send them to you if you're interested in having a look at the scales. The five-factor model basically suggests that everything that you need to know about personality is assessed by these five factors. Oh, but perhaps we should include honesty because we haven't really got that. Oh, and we haven't quite got surgency or vitality, but that's all right. We'll work it out. So they think openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Then you've got Architaligon, fabulous little questionnaire. I'll bring that up a lot in the course. Um, it's not actually little. It's about 275 items, true, false, and they're hilarious to answer. But he's got sort of like nine subscales, social potency, alienation, control, and he's got um, – three higher order factors, positive affectivity, negative affectivity, and how readily you can inhibit and constrain your impulses to wait for better options to come along, which is, of course, something that society requires of us and some of us manage to achieve and some of us don't. You've got ISYNC's EPQ, which is marvellous in a way because it picks up on extroversion and neuroticism, which are two crucial personality um, dimensions, but it also looks at your um, psychoticism, which is a bit a bit fascinating. It's you know, there's the joke that if you're neurotic, you build castles in the air. If you're psychotic, you move into them. Yeah, it's just got that extra break with reality there. Do you know? And his psychoticism factor, it's it's just got that that edge where you're really not quite sort of testing reality the way the normal population is any longer. So it's, a, it's well worth um, looking at his questionnaire. So let me just give you some of the MPQ items. First one's an, an aggression item. If people criticise me, I usually point out their own weaknesses. Okay? The best way to achieve a peaceful world is to improve people's morals. Right? That's a traditionalism item. I keep working on a problem, even if I'm very tired. That's an achievement item. <laughs> My favorite is this harm avoidance item. I just wet myself laughing when I'm reading these items. They're so gorgeous. Of the following two situations, I would like least. Running a steam pressure in a laundry for two weeks or being caught in a blizzard. The other one is listening to really bad chamber music or sh swimming in shark-infested waters and things like that. They're just gorgeous. They're great items. I can't believe that some people would actually go for the shark-infested waters, but they do. You know, on the one hand, you've got a known amount of damage to your arm. The other hand, it could be dead, but you might not die. And at least you, you don't have to listen to chamber music. Okay. So one of the things I like about Alki Tulligan, he's a big old twin researcher. He's an emeritus professor. Um, he says, trays are not visible. You can't sort of measure them. You infer them. You observe people in, across a whole array of situations and you infer from their behavior that there must be some disposition within them that makes them more likely to do this kind of stuff in this kind of way. So in other words, a, a trait or a trait, however you want to say it, is a disposition to behave. And no disposition will show itself inevitably in every situation. In other words... It's an if-then relationship. If you tell me I've got an exam tomorrow, then I won't sleep well tonight, right? If you tell me 
that I've got to point my skis downhill and just go for it, even though the slope is too hard for me, I will do so and scream loudly, right? You know, so there's the if-then dispositional things about personality. But that's the unit that you want to know about. You know, if I threaten this person, will they attack me? And how will they attack me? That matters. If I threaten this person and they're a narcissist, they'll nuke me. That's something I want to know. If I threaten this person and they're an egotist, they'll tell me I'm a worm who knows nothing. That's great. I need to know. I need to know if I'm with an egotist or a narcissist if I want to survive. So if-then things are what Cattell says personality is made up of, and gradually everybody's come back to that view these days. It's now what everyone says about personality. So traits are in the subpersonal domain. They're descriptive. They don't explain how they arose or how you got them. Their dispositions to respond. Most of the time, unfortunately, we assess them with self-report, and that means you've got to know about yourself, you've got to have insight, and it means you've got to be willing to report what you would believe you would do in a given context. Problem is, most personality questionnaires, they don't give you a context. You want to go, it depends, and it's going true or false, sorry, true or false. Yep, nope, can't say depends. Didn't give you that option. You can't say, yes, I fight like cats and dogs with my family, but I'm really nice with my friends. Not allowed. It's like, do you fight with family and friends? That's a question from the big five, right? Can't answer it. Difficult. So self-reports are powerfully shaped by a person's frame of reference when they're answering it. And here are the kinds of frames of reference that we can commonly have. When I'm filling in the big five or, you know, Telegram's MPQ, do I observe my own behavior? Do I write down what I'd like to believe about myself? And I might be self-deceptively enhancing. Do I say, well, I, t I tend to say I'm a bit bold in public, even though I'm a cowardly custard, so I'll fill it out as though I'm really bold, right? Uh, I want to keep my impression management intact. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just wear the cognitive dissonance that goes with knowing I'm not really all that bold and brave. Or do I look at the roles that I tend to play? Am I socially potent? No, but I do get dumped with choosing the restaurant. And then people do go to it. But I wouldn't call that social. You know what I mean? That's sort of how you do it. Or do other people say that you're smart and intelligent and cute or whatever? You don't actually think that, but other people sort of think it. So I might as well put it down. Or do you um, write down what you think admired others would like you to be? You know, conscientious, good at maths, persistent, where actually, you know, you go and have a cream bun, go and lie in the sun or whatever. What we also are shaped by is our current mood, and we often don't know we're in one, so always use the positive ethic, negative ethic scale. Any study that you're doing, check out people's mood. It makes a difference. Unfortunately, we're also shaped by the current view of our past. If we're depressed, we've always been miserable, and we always will be, and that's how it feels, and it feels true, even if it's not. And we're also influenced by our folk theory of personality, and we often don't even really know that we've got one of those. So... so where did broadband measures arise? How did they come into existence? Well, basically, people just analyzed dictionaries, to be honest. They thought, if this dictionary is fat around words about dependence, as Japanese dictionaries are, because it's all about dependence, if you're powerful, the emperor is the most dependent person, doesn't have to tie his own shoelaces. I'm not sure if the Japanese have shoelaces. Apologies to those that are from Japan. I'm not sure if the emperor is into things like that. But, you know, so if certain words are highly represented in a culture, there's the assumption that those words capture what matter for that culture. That's the lexical hypothesis. I love that as a multi-choice question. I'll just warn you, okay, for the exam. 
Right. So the founding assumption of the lexical hypothesis is that if it's survived in language, it's picking up on tasks, interpersonal issues that matter to that culture. Now, Lacoste and Cray initially, when they were still writing before their product was on the scene, were saying this is a terrible way to approach the study of personality because all you're looking at is common language terms. And you wouldn't study anatomy by looking at what English language terms there are for anatomy. So why should personality be any different? Five years later, they forget, forgot they even said that. They're embracing the lexical hypothesis like it's the only way to go. Okay. So what are we exploring when we use self-report as an assessment? Are we exploring a person's personality? What, or are we exploring what that person thinks about their personality? Or are we exploring their folk psychology about personality? And is that the same thing as science? Okay, these are quite important notions. Now, Alkitaligan thinks that we need to distinguish between what he calls natural language constructs, and he says they're folk concepts or common sense ideas or folk wisdom about personality within a shared culture. He, he distinguishes that from what he calls psychological constructs, like scientific concepts that we need to describe and explain phenomena, and he thinks the two are different. He says, look, they're both worthy of investigation, but they're quite conceptually distinct. And I, I think that's quite a nice notion. One of the articles that I'm going to put up online, because I've just been reading it, and it's really beautiful, by Peter Goldie, he he doesn't think that the second one should call the shots. He thinks that that if you're studying stuff to make it relevant to humans, then your concepts have to fit in with common sense ideas and, and folk wisdom of what matters. Whereas someone like Paul Griffiths, who's a philosopher of emotion, he would say, no, B should win, and we should correct our folk wisdom on the basis of our scientific discoveries. So, you know, people take different sides on this debate. It's not a done deal. There's big assessment issues, though, and I can't tell you enough about how important validity is. When we use numbers to represent a chunk of a person's life or a chunk of a person's mind, you want to be sure that those numbers mean the same thing for different people at different times. That's reliability. If you don't specify the frame of reference, if you don't say, imagine that you're filling in this questionnaire for someone who thinks you're really great, they're really gentle, they're kind, they believe in you, they're not going to be shocked by anything that you say, right? That's a really good way to get people to tell the truth because they're not going to try and put their best foot forward. They're not going to bracket off the shameful things that they do and feel. Okay, But if you don't specify the frame of reference, this side of the room might observe their behavior. This side of the room might please mum and dad. You know, you guys might sort of say, I'm actually going to self-enhance because this is, could be a job interview. And you guys might go, I don't believe in self-report. I'm not going to fill it in at all. Do you know? So that, in other words, you've got to specify the frame of reference to try and make everybody roughly have the same task in mind when they're filling in the questionnaire. Otherwise, your numbers are going to mean different things. And it's kind of garbage in, garbage out, really. If you can't measure things consistently, you haven't got reliability. If you can't get reliability, you no way are you going to get validity, which is when you're trying to measure what you think you're measuring. If I can just give you an example. When I was um, doing research um, 
in AIDS back in 94, um, we were asking women about stresses that they had in their lives. They were single mums and they were on the breadline. And one woman had been cheated on by her husband and she, it was a self-report questionnaire, but we were reading it out so language differences didn't make a difference. And she went on at some length about what a sod he was and how cruel he was and what she thought of him and what she'd do to him. And, and then we had to sort of say, so how angry does this make you on a scale from one to ten? She goes, put two. And I'm going, two? I was going to give you twelve. You know, I was going to lengthen the scale for you. And she said, because if I say any higher, it means he's one. And I thought, oh, oh no, my scales, my scales, they're not going not to work. So in other words, there can be quite dangerous slippage between what you take the numbers to mean and what the person's doing when she was filling them out so he hadn't won. And it's, that's a legitimate way to fill in questionnaires. I just didn't enter it in the computer, basically. <laughs> too much noise in that data. Now, one of the things that used to make me really see red about the five-factor model and and I can just be honest with you, I hope, was they used to sort of say, we've discovered that personality is dimensional. We've discovered that personality is hierarchical. And that's like, you know, putting on yellow glasses and going, I've discovered the world's yellow. You know, it's kind of like you haven't, you know, Likert scales impose dimensionality. Factor analysis imposes hierarchy. You've discovered that you're using methods that impose dimensions and hierarchies. You not really discovered all that much about personality and get hierarchies out of anything, to be really honest. So you can do a factor analysis of your factor analysis and get, you know, which Archie does. He's got the three super order factors and he's got lower order, lower order factors. Do you know what a factor analysis is, vaguely, even? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So what it does is it, it bunches up a whole lot of answers. In other words, it clusters everything with everything. It takes all your data and it correlates it with absolutely everything. And then it sort of finds out if there's some sort of um, thing that's almost like, you know, if you imagine an umbrella, you imagine one of those spokes of the umbrella, that's like the factor. And things that are really close to the spoke of the umbrella are good items. And things that are a little bit further away are kind of average items. If they're more than, more than 0.3 away, you don't use them. And then things that are correlated to about 0.1, you chuck them out. So it enables you to work out which of the items that the person's answered is reliably tapping something that you're interested in. So I might be interested in shame, which I am. And we developed a shame scale, and that's exactly what we did. Anything that loads on the factor 0.3 and above, you keep in. Anything that loads less than 0.3, you turf it out. Okay. So you, you clean up the factor structure and you, you invent a name for the factor and um, once you sort of see which items are representing it. Okay, so that's roughly what factor analysis is. It just simplifies really large data structures and it's, it's wonderful. I really love it. But some people think that if it's got numbers, it's scientific. You wouldn't believe how many ways you can do factor analysis if you don't get the results you want. You can rotate the axes. You can set the factor number. You can, you know what I mean? You can get what you want if that's your way of going. It, you can also use it in a very scientific way and allow the data truly to speak to you and tell you what structures are actually there. But some people don't do that. Okay. So if there are numbers 
Must it be science? Be a really great open-ended question for an exam. I'm not sure if I'd use that this year, but that's the kind of way I set exam questions. I say something really stupid and overly broad and ask you to comment on it. Okay. If there are numbers, must it be science? Is self-report all we need? You know, okay, those are the kinds of questions you'll be giving. Drawback of factor analysis is actually labeling the factors as incredibly subjective. But once they're labeled, everybody only uses that label. Architelligan measures a form of extroversion. I think measures a form of extroversion. The big five measures a form of extroversion. Do they use the same items? No. Are they assessing exactly the same construct? No. Do people keep that in mind when they're writing articles? No. <laughs> they talk about it as if it's all strawberry jam. No, it's all extroversion. You've got to be very careful. How is someone operationalizing that? How are they cashing out? What questions, what items are they using to assess it? The other difficult thing when you're looking at group phenomena or averages or law-like regularities is that one atypical thing, you, you tend to sort of treat it as a residual. You don't pay any attention to it. Okay, so if I'm the sort of person that happens to, you know, get incredibly violent and howl at a full moon, you probably wouldn't want to go to Antarctica with me alone, right? <laughs> but if that was sort of, you know, is one of your factor analysis questionnaires and it loaded point one on all of your factors, you go, useless item, you know, that's not going to help me select who to go to Antarctica with and you chuck it. But you really want some of those things sometimes. So those if-thens, however unusual, can actually be quite crucial things. So sometimes factor analysis means that you chuck out really good items. I try to keep the items that don't fit with particular scales if I'm developing them, especially if they look kind of interesting, but they're just not doing what I want this scale to do. I don't necessarily, you know, throw them out forever. But that's why... You don't have to live through it, but I had to live through a very boring debate from the 1970s to about the mid-90s about how many factors it took to describe personality <laughs> accurately. It was so dull. So there was three, there was five, there was seven, nine. Anyway, not sorry. Then there was a bit of a debate about whether or not motives and traits were different from each other. Can I just say, shorthand now, take-home message, they're different, right? If you want to assess motives, don't use self-report. Use a projective measure. You'll get much better results. And I really, really mean that because there are different kinds of motives. And some of them you know you've got, and other ones you don't know you've got, but they're operative anyway. So Costa and McRae, because they're kind of like the drug companies who want every form of depression to respond to their drugs. So, yeah, yeah, say all depression is one and the same thing. And then they discover, oh, there's this depression that doesn't respond to our drugs. Quick, quick, divide depression. We, we don't want those people in with our studies making our drugs look like they don't work. It's a little bit the same with trays and motives. Costa and McRae were going, yep, motives and trays are exactly the same thing. But then, unfortunately, their data didn't really show that. And I'll tell you about that in a little moment. The person that was the real man to watch regarding motives was a guy called Murray. And he thought, if you just look at patterns of overt behavior, you're missing out on stuff that never gets into behavior, but that the people felt like doing and talked about doing, but never actually did. You, if you just look at overt behavior, 
you know, me trying to write an essay, why is she cleaning the fridge? <laughs> you know, this is not essay writing behavior. I am, I'm trying to write my essay. I'm just cleaning the fridge. Okay, why? Well, it's because I'm in conflict. I'm procrastinating, right? My motives are expressing themselves in, in complex ways. So you want to talk to me about my essay writing behavior, not, right? Because my motives are getting tangled. And most things that interest us in life, are things where we're tangled, we experience some conflict. So you don't just want to look at overt behavior. You don't just want to look at conscious self-report. You want to look at other stuff as well. That was Lecture 20 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. 